And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. And once again, thanks for all your support, your comments on Twitter. It's great when you go to iTunes and review and rate the podcast. Uh, it really helps me to see what's working. And uh, it's great for me on, uh, on iTunes as well. So thanks for that. It's, uh, you know, one of the, the joys of doing this is uh, connecting with people who are listening to it and, and seeing how you're interested in the same stuff that I am and how when I'm chasing something down, um, you guys are listening and you're right there with me. And, uh, hey, when I miss and I don't quite get there, I like when you let me know on Twitter. And uh, when it does get there and, 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 and we find something out from these incredible um, creative people that, that I talk to, uh, it's super rewarding to know that it, it lands for you, too. So thanks for that. Speaking of uh, super creative people, my guest today, Richard Legrabenace, is just simply uh, one of the most important screenwriters uh, and writer-directors in the movie business since 1991, when his original screenplay, The Fisher King, won, uh, was nominated for the Academy Award. Just uh, a year and a half ago, or two years ago, uh, the movie he wrote, starring Michael Douglas and Matt Damon, uh, Behind the Candelabra, was nominated for uh, every Emmy you can get nominated for. And in between, Richard has done movies such as Freedom Riders, which he wrote and directed, P.S. I Love You, Bridges of Madison County, Beautiful Creatures, Water for Elephants. Um, he has, and, you know, movies like The Ref, which uh, is just, an, you know, people might call that a cult film, just an incredible film that introduced so many amazingly talented uh, people to uh, a wider audience. He's also probably been, over that time period, the most in-demand or one of the three or four most in-demand script doctors. Uh, where he comes in and fixes a movie often for no credit. He's somebody who is extraordinarily respected uh, as a super talent within the movie business and um, and as someone wh whom I know to be completely passionate about telling stories to this day. So I'm really eager to talk to him. Uh, and uh, before I was even in the business, before I wrote even the the first line of, of any screenplay, I was aware of Richard Legravenace and uh, fascinated by by him and by how he does what he does. So he'll be here soon. We're going to talk to him, and uh, I can't wait. Thanks for listening. So, uh, Richie, I already introduced you. Oh, okay. um, I gave a whole thing about how <laughs> great you are. Um, hold on, are you getting re him recorded? I don't I don't hear you in my cans, but it's okay. That's a technical term, I folks hear you. at home. You do? You hear me? Yeah, I hear you. These are cans, right? Yeah, you're wearing yeah, cans. I hear you. Okay, good. I can sort of hear you. We're fine. We're close to each other. <laughs> um, so I already introduced you. Okay. And said that, um, does that you know, as a writer-director, um, I've known about you as a, a writer since before I started doing this. And you've been, you know, a, uh, somebody to, to, to model uh, <clears throat> oneself after in terms of having, like, a long career working on mostly it seems stuff that you love working on do you think is that how you see it no <laughs> good uh no um how do i see it uh i i got uh lucky with a first script that was an original and then i was so uh this is how I, I look at it. Uh, I came from working class, you know, and, and to me it was about working and getting a job and uh, making a living. And I never thought that I had sort of had the right to uh, be what they call an artist. Um, so a lot of my career was spent uh, getting um, doing these adaptations and working with people that I really admire and, and, uh, and really um, thought highly of. <clears throat> Uh, but I'm at a point now where it feels like uh, I, I, I wanted to do... Uh, <laughs> this is hard for me to talk about, actually. I didn't realize that. Um, but you're at a point now. I'm at a point now where... Um, see, what happened was I didn't have much confidence. I've, gotten, I've gone really far with n absolutely no confidence. So that's why I say there's, there was luck involved. 
And after Fisher King, um, I really thought, uh, once this movie comes out, they'll all know. So um, let me just take as many jobs as I get offered. They'll all know that you're no talent. A fraud. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Amazing how often that word comes up in these and then, uh And then I started taking gigs and, and creating a life and having a family. And, and it was great. And then somewhere in there, you know, a new crop of... Um, writer directors came out i was never intending to be a director it was just always writing but uh uh who were about their own work and, and they weren't about you know working for this guy or this studio or this great director or these actors or they were um they were people like paul thomas anderson and quentin and right. the cone brothers and um who were before me um alexander payne and and they were just uh, uh people that had their own voices and um I'm at a point now where I feel like I went through the commercial studio mill for a long, long time. The business has changed so much. Um, I've earned my way now to kind of do what I want. And, um, you know, I, I, when I think back on it, 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 it screws my, my head a little bit because I, I started with an original and then I abandoned that for a life of being a, a writer that gets hired for adaptations and I lost I feel like I lost something and I'm trying to I'm trying to find it find it again but you're saying that's hard to talk about but I would think it's um, in a way and I want to go back to the to the beginning but <clears throat> it, it seems like in a way um so don't this follow me as a easy, model don't do it's, this at home but it seems like this way <laughs> <laughs> I'm this, so I can't, I can't, yeah, you say whatever you want oh yeah no I'm so up about this stuff so you don't want to like follow me no, no but you you uh, it seems like now though I mean, all anyone wants, I think, is to feel like a sense of now they're making progress. So finally. if you finally identified it... Finally, after 25 years. Um, but but when you say... So I, it's funny. I had written down this question. The last thing that I, I wrote down was that people always describe you when they talk about you as like this insanely talented person who can work with anybody. And I was going to say to you, is that what it feels like to you? Or does it feel much more hard won than that? So I, I guess I, it feels more hard won than that. Well, hard, yeah. Well... I don't see who can work with anyone. I just don't know if that's um, a, a good thing. I mean, well, it's sort of like get the best out of collaborative and creative relationships. I but the do first love that. Part of it, yeah. that you're... The, the the downside of that is what Scott Frank used to say to me is like we're like sofas. We retain the impression of the last <laughs> who sat on us. <laughs> so <laughs> there's like there's a there's a there's a point there's a there's a divide there where you can get too comfortable in that mode and not uh and lose your own voice a little bit but your first two <clears throat> movies i mean um i guess your very first movie i'm not but your first two movies fisher king and the ref mm -hmm. fisher king with which was an original and the, the ref, ref was has two, an, yeah. Yeah, an original and yeah. has an incredibly specific mm -hmm. point of view yeah um so really, you had those two. Do you not consider the ref like a, a successful creative outing? Even no, I, 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 I think it. Yeah, really I, is. I, I do. I, I really. Uh, you're right. I, I don't think about that. That was a, an idea that my sister-in-law had had come up with, and um, I helped sell to the to the studio, um, and then wrote. Uh, 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 so I didn't think of it as mine as much, but yes, it, it is it, in a lot of ways. Uh, it wasn't original, but it felt like a, more of a, an obligation. Um, you mean when you were creating it? When we when we were doing it, yeah. Um, Don't you? Do you but not, not really, because then I, because of Teddy and because of Ted Demi and Dennis, uh, it became a real great, you know, a really great uh, experience. And and Kevin, uh, it became a great experience. Yeah, I would think that um, that in a way, so much of the rest of your life for a long period of time came out of relationships oh, and from that movie yeah <laughs> I, and i sort of a creative identity out of that yeah second but the, the weirdest thing when people say the kind of stuff you wanted to write it that was closest to my voice than a lot of the stuff that followed um that became a lot of the stuff that were you know love stories and adaptations of bestsellers and things like that uh the ref was closer to my real th thinking you mean in your mind your gift was if you and i like um Let's uh, let's just say that uh, we'll all assume that there are disclaimers before every answer of yeah. what gift or I'm not really that talent. Like, right? Okay. So let's just we don't need to d keep doing use that. the disclaimers, but but um, but even though you're you're saying like um the movie industry recognized this gift for creating these sweeping romantic stories, Later, that's actually yeah. not where you lived. Is it, well, I never meant to be the you know the guy who does bridges and horse whisperer and and uh, you know the the romantic novel guy um 
it, it just sort of happened. Oh, yeah, because it's, well, it seems like uh, a theme that is in so much of your stuff, in the movies you direct, too, is people who, and I understand it now just from what you said uh, moments ago, there's often a person at the center of it um, who wishes they were better than what they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Tries hard to get there. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Is that something you're like aware of doing? Or no, it just and now that I, no, I think it just happens. And I, I think now that I look at it, if you look at all the, all those love stories, except for one, um, they're all about uh, somebody uh, evolving through <laughs> yeah. a love because they all wind up alone in the end. Uh, it's all about uh, self growth in, in some kind of way through a through uh, a love a love affair. But they all wind up alone, just a little stronger and knowing their place in the world a bit more. I mean, I mean, even Fisher King, yeah. which isn't that. I mean, it's between those two. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a different kind of a uh, not yeah. a romantic love. Um, what I'd heard now is this true that 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 it started because you had this idea that you wanted to um, write something where an, uh, a selfish character committed a selfless act. Yeah. And now that was the first... You had that notion before you built the story? No. That evolved as I was playing. The first thing... The very first Im was an image. I had an image of these two men walking across Third Avenue. I went to some late movie on Third Avenue um, in the cinema 123s. And these two guys were walking across Third Avenue, and one was this really handsome young guy, and one was about his age, but he was um, sort of mentally challenged. And uh, it just stuck in my head that there was, I don't know, I just imposed upon them that there was this kind of love bond between the two of them, even though they weren't talking to each other. And that's really where it started. Um, and then I was thinking about the times I was living in, and the 80s sucked. I thought um, they were really an ugly time uh, to me, uh, and things were really narcissistic and cruel. It yeah, felt like it's weird that the '70s are called the me decade because the '80s to me, oh, that, the '80s is really the really me the me decade to me. It was yeah. I mean the the '70s were this sort of false sense of trying to find yourself after all the revolutions failed um but there was at least the a lot 80s of... were like i'm not gonna find myself i'm just gonna have a great time and yeah. do blow and have you know <laughs> yeah the, the 70s there was at least like this um this top note uh, it was bs but this top yeah. note of um of uh we're gonna do for each other the remnants of the 60s exactly. yeah and then yeah by the 80s though things became so cynical especially here in this city. yeah really cynical and uh uh cold it, it wasn't a great time and, and so even, you had that in your head yeah i had and i wanted to do something about that and so um the first draft, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, this, this was the first script I wrote by myself, so I didn't know what I was doing in terms of uh, structure. So the first one was a really dense version that was very pretentious and heavy-handed, and he was a cab driver, uh, philosopher kind of guy, and he sees this homeless man and um, at some point takes him to Vegas because he realizes he can make money with him. And then I saw this ad in the Times about a movie called Rain Man that oh, was being wow. made, and it was yeah. almost exactly the same sure. story. So I threw it out, and I kept the two characters. Then I tried a more, like a sitcom version of it, where he was, you know, the Jeff Bridges character was the heir to a rubber magnet, and uh, he had to... Uh, he had to marry off this cousin of his or else he wouldn't get the inheritance. And that was a terrible version. I threw that out, but I kept the character of the cousin, which was Lydia. And so I got one thing from that. And then the third draft, um, I was driving in the morning listening to Howard Stern, and I went, oh, and that clicked in. And suddenly it's just started to build itself. Um, and when did you come up with that idea, a selfish person? Who commits a selfless act? Uh, it was around that. It was around that part. Part uh, when I uh, uh, was listening to Howard Stern and decided that he was a, he was a shock jock, and um, and at the same time I had been introduced to this book called He by Robert Johnson, which is about Parsifal, the Parsifal myth, and the. Um, I haven't read that book. I will. It's about this big. It's like you know really small. But what he does is he takes the myth of Parsifal and he chapter by chapter he tells the story and then he goes into male psychology and then he tells a story and he goes into male psychology and that's really what started the the idea of this sacrifice and selfless act thing that that book because it says that we as men when we're young um, 
we touch something that is godlike uh and it overwhelms us like we're somewhere between 10 and 12 and it sort of burns us and it wounds us and it frightens us a little bit this power this sort of otherness this sort of you know what we're supposed to do in the world kind of a thing um and then it goes unconscious and we spend the rest of our lives trying to find it but most men try and find it through uh, money, uh, power, women, cars, sure. they don't go to the fool. They don't go to that right. part that would jump off an abyss into nothing to find out something. And that's that's kind of where the story came from. Uh, what an, I mean, what an inspiring thing. And if people haven't seen the movie, I mean, the movie really holds up. And it's, I mean, I'll never forget watching it and uh, how just destroyed I was by that, oh, cool. that movie. And... Um, but I mean, as a people are always asking, or very often ask about how the the process, you know, the 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 sort of um, balance between inspiration and work mm-hmm. and doggedness, you know, the battle between oh, do you have to be super talented? Can you work hard? But I mean, when you said something casually like, "Well, I threw that out when I saw Rain Man," I mean, that most, they were making it, yeah, the that they were making Rain Man, yet. just the idea but, of it. But I mean, I think most people would have spent the next year just complaining and pissed off and feeling like they were cursed. Like, what were you made of that made you be able to go, okay, I'm going to put that aside? I kept the two. I, I just was hungry. You know, you have to have a hunger to want to express something. I think, and um, and no, I, I was pissed off and I was disappointed. Sure, and I maybe didn't go back to it for a few months, but um, there was still something about these two characters that I really loved. Uh, so I, I, I picked it up again and, and tried something completely different and then threw that away and then didn't look at it for five or six months and then picked it up again and tried again. What do you think it was about, I mean, you said you were working class, where'd you grow up? Brooklyn. And what do you think it was about whatever, whoever you were then that made you able to be comfortable with like the failure of writing? I think because, um, I... I never had any expectations that it would be made. I wrote it as a writing sample. It was a it was a writing sample to get work. That was the goal. So I never thought that there was a freedom in never thinking it was going to get made because I could let my imagination do whatever it wanted. What were you doing to earn money? Uh, my wife was supporting us, and I was wow. uh, and she was reading every she was reading new drafts all the time, and she was the one who really kept telling me to finish it as, as a writing sample. Um, I had had this other movie that I was hired to do by my buddy at the time, Neil Levy, a really great writer um, uh, who was, had worked on Saturday Night Live. And it, was called, it turned out to be Rude Awakening, one of the worst movies ever made. But in those three years or two years, that was, we were doing free drafts for Aaron Russo, this, this tyrannical producer uh, who wasn't paying us. And so there was always this glimmer of that happening. And I was so frustrated with that, and I had just gotten married. Um, I decided to start writing something on my own because I kept feeling I, my life was getting stalled. I was ambitious. I mean, I just was ambitious. So I, I think that's what kept me wanting to f- to do it. And to just keep going. Just to keep going. Yeah. When, when did you realize at what point in your life uh, I want to be a I want to be a writer? I want to tell stories. I well, um, I I always wrote. I just never paid attention to it. So even when I was uh, uh, studying theater and acting, I would write my own monologues and. And in experimental theater wing at NYU, we would write our own plays. And, and so the writing was always there. Um, the click came when I was, you know, it wasn't happening for me. I learned a lot being an actor, but it was never going to happen for me the way I wanted it to. And I wrote a monologue in my acting class that a friend of mine did. And my acting teacher knew Joe Micklin Silver, who was doing this off-Broadway show called A My Name is Alice. And she says, can I give it to her? Because she's looking for material. And that was the first bit of writing I ever sold. And it was just this monologue called Demigod. And that felt really good. And it felt really, I said, oh, this is like creatively, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, And that's when I decided to just to keep on writing. Oh, so you just made the decision, like, um, to ride the I horse in the direction it was going. Yeah. I mean, I, I also had this comedy act, so I was still performing with this guy, and, my, and I used to write all the skit material for that. Uh, he wrote his stuff as well. And um, 
that's how Neil hired me because he saw my he liked my ear for dialogue, and so it was Neil's idea of Rude Awakening, and I was going to be his sort of apprentice. And I over the, past, in the next two or three years, I learned how to write a screenplay, um, and then in the middle there somewhere, I started writing Fisher King in my spare time. Wow! When you finally like showed him Fisher King, and then suddenly. This guy, the guy who was going to be your partner, saw you wrote this thing that was going to be nominated for the Academy Award. It must have made things tricky between the two. Um, of you. It was, it was okay. Um, we were, we were starting to peter out a little bit, and um, and uh, I finished Fisher King in '88, the longest writer strike that we've ever had. It was from March to August. It was the worst, and um, the worst one, I think. Although the last one was pretty bad. Um, uh, and I finished it right in the middle of that so nobody could buy anything and nobody was reading anything and then that August when the strike was lifted suddenly all this influx of material came and I sold it that September Rude Awakening went into production that same time and I was fired from that movie because I wouldn't sell The Fisher King to that producer so, so that monster of a producer yeah. and I had to go in there and apologize for not selling it to him I didn't know a lot but I knew enough in my gut not to give it to him and um, and then it was sold in 88, September of 88 and, I, and I've been working ever since I was put under contract at Disney and in those days they still had contracts what was your like? What you said your goal was to earn a living somehow uh -huh. yeah. but a lot of easier ways to earn a living um, I'm not really good at a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> uh, I could have been a bartender. I was a bartender. I mean, I would have liked being a bartender. Um, well, because you hear this, because you could hear good stories. Yeah, stories. and it's fast, and you're on your feet, and you're, you get to meet, be with people, and it's it's completely different being a writer, which is isolated and alone, but which I also like. But uh, I didn't have any other ideas. Look, I knew I wanted to be in. Uh, I wanted to be a playwright. I mean, I thought I thought I was going to be doing theater, but then again, my wife steered me away and said, "Look, there's no money in that. You should write a screenplay." Um, and we, I was trying to start a life. I was trying to support her, and so. Um, and so you did it. And so, what was that whirlwind like for a kid from Brooklyn? What did your parents do? My dad was a cab driver. So a cab <laughs> drives. Per I mean, yeah, cab driver's son. <laughs> and then this movie gets made, and not only does it get made, it's made with two movie stars. And um, it's funny, Robin, yeah, was Robin a movie star at that moment, or did, was this one of the things that reignited his stardom? No, that's what made him... Uh, no, no, uh, he was already... I mean, Garpeter, I know that Garpeter had already come, and Good Morning, Good Morning Vietnam, Vietnam had already, had already come. come out. Yes. So, no, he was a big... He was the... the he... he uh, him saying yes, and him wanting to work with Terry, and, and wanting to just... He made it happen. And did you do rewrites for the director, for Terry? What happened was, um, I... I had these producers, and I was under contract at uh, Disney. And uh, so we got... These were the days of Katzenberg and David Hoberman and Eisner. And so Disney notes were like 16 pages of notes. They were insane. And I did a completely different... They, I, they made me watch Top Cappy and Rafifi because they wanted the heist to be... Those are like more... Great movies, great by movies. the way. Great. So I and I, all I was so grateful to get the work and everything. I just completely, you know, rewrote. And I remember writing this whole thing with roller skates and laser beams and all this kind of stuff. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, to his credit, said to his executives, "This isn't as good as the first one, and I'll never make the first one." So he put it in turnaround. And then TriStar bought it, and um, it was under TriStar that it was made. And then for two years, it just languished trying to find a director. And then finally, Terry had just done Munchausen with Robin, and they wanted to work together again. And, and Terry said to me he had just gotten an agent. Um, he had never had an agent before. And the young young guy, Jay, Mal Jay, Mahoney, Jay Maloney. Jay Maloney, who's uh, yeah. passed away now. Yeah, yeah, who gave him two scripts. He gave him Adam's Family and Fisher King. And they were both sitting on his kitchen table. And he read... And he, when he read Fisher King, he says it was as if he had written it. And um, so the point of the story is when Terry came on board, he made me put back all a lot of my original stuff that executives had made me cut out and soften. Brilliant. So um, where where they made me turn the lead character into more of a David Letterman, he made me put it back to more of a Howard Stern. Uh, so that kind of stuff. He kept uh, referring to their version as the Capra, the Frank Capra version. And so for somebody who um, I love those stories. There's this great story about Sidney Lumet. I guess the verdict 
I guess Mamet what? had written this. Mamet had written a draft of the verdict. Yeah. And they had like six. The story goes. Sidney Lumet tell, told the story that I guess there were like nine writers after Mamet, and Mamet's draft. Mamet's draft was never wasn't sent out to people. Why? The studio didn't dig it. They didn't get it. Oh. And when Sidney got the project and saw what the bones of it were, he said, let me read the very first draft. <laughs> and it was David Mamet's Oscar-winning draft. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, he read the thing, and he said, I'll do this movie. And this is when Sidney was super like powerful. He said, I'll do this movie, but only if we shoot this, this first script. draft yeah. exactly as it was written. Oh. Then you have me, and I'll go get you Paul Newman. How awesome. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> th- those are the things that give you like some <laughs> faith. faith to go forward. <laughs> I mean, Lumet tells the story, I think, in making that book of his, Making Movies, which is one of the only great books. It is. It's a great book. For someone who wants to do this. It is. It's a great book. Um, so, but, so you had two years and then uh, of, uh, uh, of Taking no jobs and being under contract and doing that stuff. Yeah. And so when it finally happened, it went into production. Mm-hmm. You know, the show is called The Moment because I'm, I'm really interested in how oh, okay. people who do remarkable things process these moments and how they don't get whether they get crushed by them originally or not like what what happened to you um suddenly being feted like suddenly being told how did you process well the lucky part was that i had terry and terry came from monty python and monty python's motto what they were all writers and they were in control of their work uh before uh bbc realized that they had become a hit so by the time they did they couldn't they were all about protecting the writing and terry was all about that as well um and as much as we hear robin ad libs and stuff this he was very uh very he treated the script very safely yes very very much uh there may be a cut maybe two lines he he um he ad libbed but um he really was was faithful to it so the couple of moments i remember are you know, thinking I'm completely, I have no idea how movies are made, and I was a little out of my league. And after a take, Robin would look for me and and go, is that, was that okay? And I would literally t- look behind me wondering <laughs> who he was looking at. You're asking, you're asking me? And, because um, he was so sweet about it, about that kind of thing. And then um, there's another story where Terry, uh, it was the big scene where Mercedes and Jeff have this argument and break up. And um, they rehearsed it. And Jeff exited um, in the middle of the scene instead of staying for the rest of it. And um, I went up to Terry. I said, well, you, you know, he's not really supposed to do that. And and, and so Terry got on my case and said, um, everyone, um, everyone stop. He stopped the carpenters. He stopped the electricians. Oh, no. He stopped everyone. He humiliated me. He went, um, the writer would like it done as written. <laughs> And I was, compl- and, I, and all I did was I held up those little sides, going, "Well, it, well, it says here that he he's, he stays on the couch." <laughs> I didn't know how much I could say or not say, and everybody started laughing, and I was completely humiliated. Um, well, that taught you how to speak on set. But I, ha- but it was, you know, but but he included me a lot. I remember there was something I was rewriting on set, and I went into the trailer. It felt like being one of those forties, you know, like nineteen yeah, forties sure. guys. I was like tapping it out on the thing and running to the set, showing it to the to, to the actors. He says, "You show it to the actors because I have to do something else." Um, he was. Uh, I got really spoiled. He was an amazing first-time writer. Direct, uh, well, first he's a summer, legendary you know. figure for a reason. I mean, you know, the guy made the movie Brazil. Yeah, and uh, and was in Python. I mean, yeah. he's a. Uh, it was the best. It was the greatest uh, protection I could have had. And then when the thing you know comes together and you see that the movie works and then it's successful, how did you? Um, process the validation and sort of change in your in your status was that an easy thing for you was it was it hard no it wasn't easy i felt uncomfortable in it and uh the oddest thing happened because i was listed in the phone book um and um there was a guy on the upper west side who was kind of a crazy guy who decided, who had this whole fantasy worked out that I had talked about the script to my partner at a restaurant, which I never did because Neil didn't know I wrote it till I sold it, and that I was having trouble with the ending and that he came up with it and that I had stolen the idea from him. <sighs> so when Fisher King came out, I had a stalker telling the entire Upper West Side that I was a fraud 
just to show you how like you manifest your I was gonna thoughts. Say, you could have manifested I that manifest- thought yourself. I mean, yeah. to the po- I mean, this guy was really creative. He actually had a picture of me on 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 a wanted poster that he put on light all over the Upper West Side. I would see my face going wanted for perjur uh, for uh, plagiarism. <laughs> And it your was name, insane. my photo, my my picture, and my name, as the movie, like a week after the movie, and then he started he started calling my house in the middle of the night. I had just had a, we had just had a baby, was not even a year old. Um, started calling my night. He would drop off incredibly long letters uh, before emails, written in tiny tiny print, um, until I had to get a. Uh, protect uh, or temporary order of protection, and then he kind of stalked me all the way through to Streisand. All the way to mirror with yes. two faces? Where he would call up he would call up the office and all that kind of stuff until that was it. Streisand put it into it. It was like suddenly the FBI were involved. Right, and then, then you were done. God, never heard from him so again. So you lived with that for that long a time. Yeah, so always calling me a fraud in, the, in that uh, way. So that, in a way, that must have felt comforting. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I knew that it was like, okay, this is uh, the projections are so bad, man. I can actually think them, and then they happen, you know? But when um, you got nominated... Well, that also got taken. That also was look for me. The nomination was. I knew I was never going to win because, uh, you know, that year you remember. I mean, Thelma and Louise was, sure, a dynamite movie. And I was friends with Callie because we both were at. We we came. We knew each other that year, and I knew. But getting the nomination to me was just okay. You've got the right job. I knew I wasn't going to win, but I thought it was like life going, patting me on the back, going, okay, you're doing the right thing. You should keep doing this. That's that's all I needed was a little bit of validation. Yeah, that makes total sense. But so you then, felt that validation. I then. did, but then there's always someone trying to take it away from you. So then Gene Siskel, this was one of the most horrifying things. I'm, I remember it's the Saturday night before the Oscars. The Oscars were Sunday, maybe? Yeah, back, yes, that's right. Back then? And TriStar was having some party for all of us, and we were in a hotel room, my wife and I. And now, you have to understand, my parents and my family, nobody went to college. They're all, you know, really, you know, if they read it in the post, it's the truth. So if somebody says it on television, it's the truth. And, you know, they were simple people, my parents. And um, so I'm getting dressed, and Siskel and Ebert do their Oscar thing. And I'm standing in front of the TV, and Gene Siskel goes, and now for my favorite part, the worst nomination of the year. And as I'm doing my tie, I'm going, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. And I couldn't, and it was me. And the first thing I thought of was, oh, man, my mom and dad are watching this, and they're going to think, they're going to be embarrassed for me. They're going to be upset and embarrassed for me, because I know my mother goes right to shame. Um, and that was my first thought. It wasn't that it didn't affect me that much, but I thought it's going to, and I was angry at him for taking it away from them because this should have been a really proud moment for them. I mean, really. And he had a on it for no reason other than to like be Siskel. But in a way it gave you something to feel bad about. Yes. (laughs) It humbled me again. So you got to do my legs are completely cut out from underneath me at every step of the way. Each time, every time along the way, Every, every time. But I wonder, in a way, if you just somehow part, some part of you like needs it to to stay fired up. And, and, because, I don't know. I'm a little tired of getting beaten up. Because we notice what we want to. Don't you think you notice what some part of you needs to notice? I guess I I, I have to think that at this point. But um, you know, I guess it made me stronger because I, I know I look. I'm I'm used to uh, humiliation. Being you know, growing up in Brooklyn, being the kind of boy I was. Um, what do you mean, the kind of boy? Well, you, you know, I wasn't a tough kid. I wasn't a sports kid. I wasn't, you know, I, I liked movies and I liked, you know, um, so I liked theater. Uh, so so it, how'd you get by? What'd you do? Uh, I was alone a lot. And I was, um, you know, when we signed up for teams, I was the comic. I was the guy, I, you know, you'd say sometimes you, you, you choose teams by going, okay, let the two worst players choose. And I would you know, raise my hand. Like I would mm. just throw myself I would I would start making fun of me before other people did so I was used to that but I think I needed to gain a tougher skin in uh, more public you know you have to you have to have a tougher skin so did you when you when you found at NYU and then later this sort of community of people did you did you feel like any more like understood or a part of things Other writers, I mean, um, I think us. I think the writer community is a really cool community in, in the in the uh, yeah, I agree. movie business. I do. Um, they're some of the smartest, uh, most supportive people. At least, at least in the movie 
side of it uh, because we've always have been friends and sort of support each other. I'm learning something different in television, but movies, <laughs> I, I always thought oh, we get to that in a it's second, a little but... different. But uh, screenwriters have always been, uh, they understand it. And uh, yeah, I've met, I've met some really great, great friends. No, I think that's true. Um, I guess there's a story that Seinfeld tells on um, on that Coffee with Cigarettes show mm-hmm. about Chris Rock when he somehow Chris was at a party and some other or some some other comedian that was walked in he didn't know that well but as soon as that guy walked in Chris felt safe because he was like ah, ah another <laughs> yes. like a comedian yes. is, as someone else who understands yeah 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 and it, it is true Richie that we all do have. Um, if I'm somewhere and a guy I know or a woman I know is a screenwriter, yes, I feel like I, I through, there's an immediate, right there. yeah. um, can, you know, there is an immediate sort of well, even if we work on things that are very different, uh, different levels of success, it's like oh, uh, we've been th- we understand yeah. something very fundamental. We share a language, you know, we share a certain language. Um, well, I wouldn't say it that way. See what I did? No. See what it. I just did there? <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we do. Yes, but with other do. kind of people in the business, I would always have social anxiety. I would always just wind up getting nervous and saying the stupidest thing, and then feeling humiliated. Even like directors or or yeah. actors, actors especially. Yeah, I would say st- really stupid things to actors. But people always um, think you give actors a tremendous amount of comfort. People always say it's something you're not the couch thing. Whatever. No, this but was they- in the early. This was in the early days when I uh, was shy and. I didn't realize it was social anxiety. I would just like say something really, like like a Tourette's thing. Right, the thing you just should not say. Yeah, <laughs> just something really stupid. And ha- so, how'd you figure that out? Um, what changed it for you? Being careful, just gaining a little more confidence and feeling more comfortable and feeling like, oh wait, I belong in this community. I, I can offer opinions and I can, you know, uh, talk to people like regular people. You see, I coming from Brooklyn and my family, we loved movies, so I was a huge fan. Yeah. It's difficult to be a fan and also work in the business at the same time. The fan in you and the writer and the person trying to take its place fight each other, you know. Um, and it took me a long time to stop being such a fan of everything and thinking everybody knew better than me and everybody was above me. Right, you could still be a fan of the great movies. Yeah. But but you're saying to to feel like you had um, Less a than. legitimate place at the table. Yeah, exactly. And still be a fan. I mean, I'm, I'm a tremendous fan of a lot of people's work nowadays, but I don't um I uh, idealize them or put them up on a pedestal and think, well, I'm not I'm not worthy. It's you know, huge, and that's what I was that's doing. That's a giant thing to have to figure out. I did that for years with the, you know some people. Um yeah, but, that, and yet and yet I found myself when it came down to the writing, when it was about writing, I'd always tell the truth. It just is in social situations. I was bad. You would tell the truth to whom? Anyone. It didn't matter who the director was or who. When it was about the work, I was always very honest about what I thought, and I would fight for whatever I thought was right, knowing that it's a director's medium and that writers really, we had no power. Um, that, for some reason, I never had any problem doing. As long as it was about the work, I was comfortable. In a social situation, I was not. Because somehow you could separate the work yeah. from yourself. Because creatively, I knew I knew what I, I knew what I was talking about, I felt. Um, but in a social situation, I couldn't function. Right. In a social situation, almost like um, you're, you're, you're far away from the thing that gives you the, the, the credence for being there. The identity. I mean, as a, you know, when you're writing and you're working... I, this is my job. This is who I am. When I'm at a you know a party or a dinner or something, I don't know what I am. When it when it started happening for you, did you, was your family pleased and supportive? Thrilled, shocked. They my mother couldn't they couldn't believe it. I mean, they couldn't believe that one of us made it across the river to Manhattan. Yeah, <laughs> which was my goal. I, my goal was never Hollywood. It was always New York. Just to be a player originally to write plays here to really just live in New York. I mean, you know, when you're a little boy and people say to you, "Do you you know, want to be a fireman? You want to be?" I wanted to live in Manhattan. That was the one goal. And I used to sneak into the city when I was a little boy, when my mother didn't know. So that's what, have you ever lived in L.A.? No. Right. Me neither. No. I mean, for like a couple months when shooting, obviously. Yeah, when shooting or posts or things like that. And again, you know, not to get into the whole L.A., New York thing, but uh, New York is my home and it was my dream. L.A. was never my dream. Right. It's funny. I never had it as a conscious dream to live in Manhattan, but I grew up on Long Island. You know, grew up on Long Island and definitely in uh, a situation that was, you know, we were not poor and my dad wasn't a cab driver but the sort of uh 
the fact that like really <sighs> people who read books who were in Manhattan. <laughs> no, like you know, and Long Island people. Listen, if you Long Island people, I'd say don't send me letters. But honestly, how many of you still know how to write a letter out there in Long Island? <laughs> if you do, you're, you believe you want to move here too. You're moving here too. Um, but I too, like I moved here and basically never. I mean, basically never left. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the goal. And never wanted to live out. I mean, never wanted to live out there. No. And you didn't. No, no, I never did. And so they were happy. They felt they like you had done well. Yeah, and I was able to help them and um, and start a family. And yeah, so it was a, it was a big deal for them. And then, was it a conscious choice? Because the thing you said about um, taking these adaptations. And working for other people instead of doing whatever was like um, setting you on fire creatively. Now, but part of the way that works is you get offered, one gets offered, you know, you're hot, you get the uh, mm -hmm. uh, nomination, the movie's a huge success. So they're offering you 10 books and you're picking one to adapt. Mm -hmm. And were you making those choices based on like passion or were you making them in a more calculated oh, way? Oh, no, I, didn't, I never had a calculation. If I had, I'd probably be further along. Um, I, I only. I only chose things that I had uh, some kind of feeling for, a real feeling for. So wh I remember while we were shooting Fisher King, I was writing Little Princess. I had already gotten that because right. I had this three-picture commitment at uh, Disney. So I had to pick stuff that they had. So Little Princess was one of them. The first one I did never got made. Little Princess was one, and the ref was the third, the fulfillment of the commitment. Um And then after that, uh, so, to me, it was always about uh, – I always thought <clears> – <throat> The only power you have as a writer is choosing who you work with in terms of movies. Because after that, you don't really have a lot of power once they give you a nickel. So yeah. who you choose to work with is a very uh, important decision you make. Because that's who's going to be protecting your script, help, you know, guiding and and not being a liar, not trying to undermine you, not trying to fire you. I mean, that's that's a big deal. So, so that, how'd, you that start a lot to figure to that out? how'd you start to figure that out? Um I don't. I just, just I would look at the project. I would look at who's attached to it. I would see their track record and see what what I thought of that. Then there were some people that I thought, well, I'd like to learn to work with them. Um, or you know, when when I got offered Bridges, I was really indecisive about it um, because it was such a big book, and there were these two other writers who had done two versions before me. Um, and it was my sister, my my older sister, who I said to her, what do you think about this book? And she told me her passion for it and what it meant to her. And I realized that there was something really special in this book, only not the way it was written. You know, it just was, it meant something to her. What? And I was being too um, snobby about it, that there was something genuinely uh reaching connecting with women like my sister that I wanted to do inside that story inside that story inside those characters yeah i would agree i mean uh, i think that's totally true um i read that book one week before it became a sensation really i was in an independent bookstore you know that's how the book became you know you know cuz you wrote the movie but you know that book started in independent bookstores it mm -hmm. was a yeah it independent <sighs> booksellers loved that book for some reason they started giving it to people who really? would really yeah and I was in some small bookstore and someone gave me the book and I, you know, they said, oh, you should read this or my, and I remember reading it and, uh, I remember just, uh, I was still not doing this for a living yet. What? It was like 1995 maybe when the book came you out. Were, you were, you weren't around. No, I remember that I was, I remember where I was when that ha happened. Um, the movie came later, but when I was in the music business still and, and I know exactly oh, wow. where I was in Memphis, Tennessee when somebody gave me the book wow. and I remember turning to the guy I was working with. Uh, and saying this book's going to be the biggest book in the country. Right. I just read it, and it was so clear <laughs> what was going to happen. <sighs> when now was Clint invo involved at that stage, or only signed when on I, once your script was I finished? When I came on, it was through Kathy and Kathleen Kennedy had bought it for you know very little uh, before it was published, I think. And um, I had done something with Stephen and, and her during those pre-Fisher King production years. And so they, they knew me. And they brought me in. And at that time, Clint was only hovering over it as an actor. And Stephen was going to direct it. But then he wasn't Spielberg, sure because he had just yeah. done... I'm sorry. Spielberg. And he had just done Schindler's List and he was kind of worn out. Um, but they needed to get a draft because of a deadline for the weather in Iowa. So this was January I got offered it. So then I said yes... I wrote it. I got the movie greenlit, and then they hired Bruce Beresford, who fired me and the draft. Brought in, brought back Alfred Urey, 
and then Clint fired them, brought my <laughs> script back, and then he directed it. Now we're in July. He shot in August, and then it was, he shot it in five and a half weeks, and then it was done. Were you on set? I went with him the first time I met him. I went with him uh, to the because Beresford already set up the locate had had already set things up to a certain extent. So um, we went to the farmhouse and uh, we you know talked a little bit. He his notes were the cleanest. Again, it was about. Uh, f he, he just was really cool to, to work for. What did that feel like to you, suddenly to have? like Clint Eastwood in your life. It was insane. As a kid, he I mean, it was insane. Uh it was it was insane. It was um Were you able to find your footing with him if you're having yeah. like those issues? In yeah. Your head? I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, because again it was about the work, so I I had that confidence a little bit that I knew what the script was about. And um we were on this little plane going to Iowa and talking about it and stuff and he was really cool and he has a great sense of humor and he's very smart. Uh, you know, he he made me put in things that were touchstones to the book. He says you can't alienate um the people who love the book for the people who don't think the book is literary. Um yes. and so there was that balance in there. Did you carry that lesson forward? Uh yeah, and I was, I forgot it at the, I forgot it big time uh, on on yeah, which was a bad thing for me to do. Um and that was my mistake. But he he was smart about that. Don't beat yourself up. <laughs> um, he did a lot more right than he was uh, cool. Wrong. He, but yeah, he was really. Um, Were you, did you have like that out of body? Exp uh, like I know that the, you know when I the uh, yeah. first time I when I first time Pacino walked on set to wow. say something that I, I you know Dave and I had written. I mean you know you, you're mostly cool through all of it, and then yeah. once in a while you just. Yeah, <laughs> you, you go like I can't. Oh, that's Michael Corleone. Yeah, I'm saying so. But for with Clint, and now he's directing a movie that you wrote. <sighs> yeah, I just remember the meeting him on this private Warner Brothers plane, and we were both hunched over because we were too tall for the. Um, it was the smaller one, and then we just flew to Iowa that night, and that was our. That was. The but first I guess time I'm asking, met. do you? So allow we just talked about the script. Did you allow yourself to feel like uh, happiness? Oh God, yeah! Oh, good. I was thrilled. You were, yeah, yeah. And then when we, and then when, when we heard Meryl had said yes, I, I couldn't have been. It was like insane, you know. Um, but that I, I never went to visit the set. It was just uh, no. There was no need. He did the script, and we made our changes um, in a couple of weeks, and um, that was it. Right. So that was a great. That was experience a great experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a time where adapting a book didn't feel to you like it was um, subjugating your real. Did, like, <clears throat> oh, that whole time, did you have, did you have things that you would say to yourself? I wish I were doing. I never gave myself the ch the time. I was always working, so I never gave myself. This is the first time you're seeing me now, and this is the first time in twenty six years um, that I'm not taking work, and I'm going to see if I have an original idea. Uh, I never let myself off to see if I had any ideas or Ooh. develop anything. Oh, because the, the, I mean, the I work thought, ethic I had, was yeah. too... Uh, I, I, the I fear in a way? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the lack of confidence. So have you not written a spec script in that whole time? Nope. Not one? Nope. Right. I guess you wrote Candelabra basically for for free originally. <laughs> I got a little bit, but uh, no, but no, that's that, basically you you're just that doing that for. I mean, you're well, that was for yeah, that was the well, that's what happened last year. You know, I realized that the things that I was doing for love, which were not the things that were calculated or being uh, advised through a a agents or managers or whatever producers, um, were candelabra, which I did because I wanted to because it was Stephen and because I I got the material and I had to do it and sort of, um, yeah. last five years which was this thing I did for nothing that was this little that musical that I wanted to do that you that direct I, wrote and directed yeah but it's pretty I, writing is I adapted it for the screen it's all written by Jason Robert Brown um, except for a couple of lines here or there um, but you got more joy out of doing those oh things. totally and and coming off of the failure of beautiful creatures which was my attempt to write for the marketplace it was like the god just going does a house have to fall on you so the failure of that and the humiliation the humiliating failure of that and then coming right after that was candelabra and these this little musical going oh i get it i should be doing what i 
love <laughs> and and not I, I mean, can't it's great you were able to make that determination, but when you say the humiliating failure, you really like it was livid painful. in that way. It was painful. It was because it, it failed you in a humiliating way, and I only have myself to blame. I should have never done it. Uh, yeah, well, when you say, I don't think that artists should. I mean, you, you're you're. It, I mean, you're pursuing something, but normally I would say you, the only thing that I think is something I don't understand even, and that's probably my failing actually is. The thought process even of I'm going to try to calculate for the market or I'm going to try to write to the market because your big successes have been when you've been right added some original I got element to I got, something. I, well, that's what I tried to do with this, except I didn't understand the culture. And the culture is they the sure, people those who love that 600-page yes. book wanted everything exactly like they... If I had just adapted the book, it would have been a different experience, but I couldn't because I didn't respect... The material, which meant I didn't respect the fans, which meant I shouldn't have never done it to begin with. I thought I was going to elevate it and make it, and that was wrong of me to think that. But you, t you took a really empowering lesson from it, though, after Huge. the... after the Never do that again. Right, I'm saying a after dealing with feeling yeah. bad. Yeah, and the, and the production was a fantastic experience. I lived in New Orleans. My actors were awesome. I had the best actors. Uh, the post was a nightmare, and the release was a nightmare. But the lesson you took from it was, Don't I'm going to create what I want to create. Yeah, I, I, I get to earn my way now uh, on my own uh, and not have to uh, do that. But I want to go, go uh, backwards to another moment that seems to me, uh, I just want to know how you went through it. And I won't name the movie out of respect to the writer who got credit on it. Uh, I'm not going to know. We're not going to name the movie. No one's going to get their feelings hurt. <clears throat> but... I just want to, you know, because you were a script doctor, and for a long period of time, I mean, you're sort of, as you're talking, downplaying the success of your career, but there was a long period of time where you're, you, I mean, you still are, one of the most in-demand script doctors. Well, I hate, I mean, many, I mean, there, a lot of us are. I mean, a lot of people, I don't know how I got the, the name for it more, but, uh, I mean, a lot of people are uh, out there. Um, I mean, not a lot, uh, like 20 people. I mean, it's not a hundred people. Well, it's not the '90s are, anymore, so they don't. Yeah, it's the, not a hundred people who are. No, <laughs> but it's not a hundred people who are really doing the job, um, where you're in there with a the director and a movie's going to get made, and you're really fixing yeah. it to get greenlit or to for the actors. And right. But the thing I want to uh, talk about, and again, um, without naming the movie, but I just think the situation is fascinating, and in a way, for someone like you. There was a movie that somebody wrote a bunch of drafts of. A director came into it, hired you. No. How did it? Okay, so I was I was I did the rewrite bef to get a director. Fine, even better. So I it was still in development. It was still I in development. The, you did the rewrite because the director then, tells me the story. The huh? director has told me the story that then you and he worked together. Then he, I remember saying to him, "You you, don't, you sure you don't want to work with the." Original First, writer. And he said, no, I want to work with you, because it was my draft that got him on. So then I worked with him and continued to work with him through getting the actors and then through production. And then after previews, I wrote more scenes that were needed. So it went and, all And through. how did you... What? And, and it's a unique situation because um, everybody involved in the movie thought you deserved credit on it, wanted you to get credit on it. And then the movie won a bunch of Academy Awards. Um, or it was this, nominated. It yeah. was nominated. Um, uh, oh, yeah. It was nominated. Pe and then people from the movie won awards. And you weren't even nominated. You, you were, well, I, wasn't, I didn't have credit. You, you didn't have credit on the movie. Right. Um, now, it was great for you when people say in town and in the business, it was great for you. Everybody in the business knew you wrote the movie for that period of time now <laughs> maybe they don't but they did no <laughs> but they matter. did then it's an old story yeah but what did it what did that like feel like for, for, for you it, it felt like you know oh here's the Lagravenese curse again you know here's the <laughs> here's, you know this i'm not meant to get past a certain ceiling i'm not meant to earn i'm not meant to be seen i'm, I'm not meant to you know succeed at a, past a certain level you know it just was all that shit. and that began a period where I spiraled out a little bit, not because of that, but I got really lost uh, spending a couple of years on a couple of scripts that then went nowhere. They, I didn't have my name on another script uh, on a movie uh, for six years. From 2000, on, well, from actually from 1998 until 2007. So what is that, nine years? 
I didn't have my name up on the screen on a movie for almost And within years. that time period, how many times would you say your words were spoken on the screen? Uh, I don't know. But many. I guess. There were many movies. But then I remember a friend of mine who, who got me into the, the rewriting because I was had to make a living business. He says, be careful because it could become like crack. And then you start to really lose your soul you know because you become this fixer and then you really start to lose your your sense so i had to stop at some point so did you think about though that movie and the fact that did, did it it just did it continue to bother did it did really sure, it, like, it hurt it, look it stung i'm not gonna lie it really stung but um it took me a while to earn my way back because i don't think i'd be cool about it if i were you like i'm very cool about i've never spoken about what movies um dave and i have rewritten that we haven't gotten credit on mm -hmm. many movies have come out that have uh you know dialogue we've written and scenes and stories and i won't yeah. i won't say what they are out of respect but but in that particular situation i don't think i'd be as sort cool as you've been especially because i was given credit and then it was taken away when you've Seen, you mean the studio put you up for credit and then the guild took it away and the the writer arbitrated against you yeah uh, have you run into that writer we've we've um we're fine we actually emailed each other recently because she was uh doing a um a tv series and what wanted uh to see uh clips of this actor i just used and uh she was very classy and, and terrific and um we had a wonderful email exchange uh literally just these past couple of months a few months ago so it was actually and that really made great. the piece, it, did that make the piece what else, in a way? Gonna, what else are you going to do it's old news it's an old story she has one way of seeing it i have another and oh um, you think that 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 she believes you think she actually believes it it was adjudicated fairly absolutely she doesn't think she's Scooch over. Absolutely. No, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because she's going by the numbers. My my issue was it's a guild situation where I don't believe the numbers, the 51% thing, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make well, sense. How do you calculate that? What, what well, you're you calculate? talking about is sort of how the Writers Guild, when there's an, um, uh, when there's a dispute, the there there are, are writers are, are impaneled to make a judgment and they're supposed to look at roughly a percentage con right. a, a contributions to the screenplay by percentage but it's not by page percentage it's by the impact on the movie i guess that's what they that, that's what they uh, have you ever done it have you arbitrated no. been an arbiter no no oh, i've done it a bunch of times no. because i wanted to i wanted to understand like. it because i think such a it's very often um such a bad job arbitrary. is done. <laughs> yeah, it's so arbitrary. So I wanted to like get in there and figure it out. It's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not at all. It's not. Um, but you then you were able to sort of put it... Had to. Yeah. I mean, had to move on. But I had some tough years after that. Not because of it, but that was sort of the beginning of uh, a bad period. It, it, but is, did you... Did, did, you had already directed one movie by then. And that was, uh, that was really the beginning of the bad period because I had such a, a traumatic experience on that. Why? And so that was the beginning. Well, what you said you didn't want to be a director. What made you then decide? Is that what I didn't want to be? I just it just was ever part of the plan, and um, it, it, I, I just I wanted to experience what it was like to be completely in control creatively of something, um, and I still think, except for the last five years, which is the first movie I feel that I've directed, that I feel like a director on, that I designed, and it was someone else's material. The other movies, to me, I was a writer directing. I, I don't f feel like I was a director. The way that director, you know, you know, when you meet certain people that we know, it's in their DNA. Sure, it's in absolutely. their DNA. You know what I mean? And and my DNA is is a writer. And I would do directing. I always, um, I love the experience of it, and I it always changed my life. It got me to like the next step of self kind of understanding. Um, but last five years, this, this movie, I just, this little indie film f did for no money with no producers, no studio. I mean, we had producers, but no studio, no executives. Um, was the first time I ever felt like I actually directed a movie. It feels like the first movie I've directed. And is it 100% finished? Yeah. And when's it coming out or how's we're waiting, it coming we're, out? We're figuring out the release thing now because it's a very odd movie. It's all sung. It's with Anna Kendrick and Jeremy Jordan. It's only two people. And, um, Are you it's doing all film sung. festivals? We're trying. You know, but, you know, if people don't like musical theater and you know how those festivals work, you know, six people sitting there watching it alone going, I don't get it. It's not, you know, it's not going to make it through. But we have a company, we have foreign distribution and we have a company uh, here that wants to distribute it, but we have no plans yet. Well, the but world this is year, different hopefully, now anyway. I mean, there's no, um, 
there's no stigma for a small movie to come out on one or two screens and then go on video on demand. But and, that's their model. I mean, yeah. saying there's nothing. No, not at um, all. Not at all. And I know. And what what we're trying to teach this, uh, educate people about is that those of us who love musical theater know that this particular piece is a classic among musical theater fans, not to the general public, but to the musical theater fans. And they're all over the country, and they're dying to see it. So we made it for a very small amount of money, and I know that there's a core niche audience for it. It's just getting it to them that's going to be the, the, the challenge. Well, but it's exciting that you did it. I'm through. Yeah, it changed my life. It was the greatest. It was the greatest experience I had. That's awesome. Um, and then you followed it up by by now you created a TV show. Yeah, Tell uh, me Tony about Goldwyn that. and I created uh, um, a TV show called The Divide uh, that premieres on the We Network by um, which is owned by AMC Networks. Uh, it's to rebrand the We Network the way that Mad Men rebranded AMC. Well, and that, that show uh, I think is going to be on on Wednesday the 16th. That's right. That premieres Wednesday, uh, July 16th. Which I hope is going to be the the day after this. <laughs> uh, people are listening to this because this comes out on Tuesdays, and that's. Um, that's a Wednesday night. What's the show about? It's uh, it's a it's about characters. Uh, Tony did a movie called Conviction, where he got to know the Innocence Project, the Peter Newfeld Barishek yes. organization, and he came to me and said, "I really want to do something about this organization." And then over a period of four months, we developed these characters and story where the Innocence Project what we call the initiative is is a character in the story but it's really about characters set against the world of justice and death penalty um it's not an it's not a procedural it's not an episodic it's one the first season is one case and it really is about the ambiguity of justice and injustice and this sort of moral divide that each character crosses to achieve a sense of personal justice when the legal system cracks and doesn't cannot provide justice. And did you and Tony write it and together? I wrote it and he directed the first two episodes and we both exec produced it and um, Janusz Kaminski directed one of the episodes who's a great director. Well people probably most people listening probably know Tony as the president on of Scandal. Scan yeah, he's fits. He's fits. Um, we started this before Scandal and then it took many years for it to come to this. But um, he's also a terrific director. Directed he's great. some wonderful movies including um, Walk, Walk, Walk on the Moon on the Moon and, and uh, directed a bunch of Dexter episodes and yeah. He's and a, justified, and he's a uh, super talented person. No, he's really a, a great so partner. What what makes somebody um, because you've collaborated with so many really spectacularly talented people? What do you think it is that makes somebody good at at collaborating? At, at, what do you think like are the essential elements for a creative partnership to work? Uh, well, listening. Um, um, you have to be uh, you have to be wanting to ma be making the same thing. I think you know uh, bad movies happen when everyone is on it is making a different movie. You know that experience. Um, I know it certainly way too well. Yeah. Way too well. Um, so it's about again a writer's biggest biggest greatest power is in choosing who you're going to work with, who you're going to take the ride with, and they have to be of the same mind and they have to be collaborative and they have to get it the same way. Otherwise, it's a really painful experience. Just a couple questions. We'll finish up, but a couple questions about the creative process. Uh, does writing come easily to you now? Never. Every time I start again, I think I, I forgot how to do it. Um, so I feel like I'm starting from the ground up again. Um, I'm scared to death to have this period and see what I, what I would come up with as an original because it's been a long time. Um, I'm finishing up one commitment that I that's my last commitment. Um and, you know, sometimes I write and it feels too facile and too, you know, phony and um, things have changed for me, you know. And uh, so, no, I, I always feel like I'm starting again, that it won't, it, it whatever it is, it won't show up. And then you just got to keep showing up and eventually getting into that, trying to find that zone again, you know. Do you have rituals? Do you uh, do things like um, I start at a certain time or no. journal or walk around? Like I used to. How do you build your day around? Uh, right this? now, I've just been taking time off because I've been working straight for two years. Um, but as I start to get my rhythm again, I have to f I have to discover all that. I have to see how all that works because it is important to have those kind of disciplines. It really is. So it you helps. did at one time. I did, yeah. But now you're just... Well, it seems like now in a way you're returning... Like you're trying to pick up the string from who you were right after Fisher King. In, in a way, rough. you know, I said, I, I was saying to uh, our friend Soderbergh about how uh, working on this TV series, it was amazing, you know, writing something with a gun in your head because you have to, you're, the production and the, and the schedule. And, and he says, and it's even better when it's your gun. And so that's the kind of thing I'm going to try and figure out now. 
Well, that's great. I'm glad it's a metaphorical gun. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I hope you know that your movies, you know, I, it's funny, Rich, I've known you for such a long, long time, time yeah. um, but not very well, but I mean, well in the way that we have a lot of mutual friends and to know each other well, but, but the way, uh, I'm not sure you understand that, uh, that you're really an inspiration to so many people who who do this because you're somebody who whether you look at this career as like um, missed opportunities I think to the rest of us you're somebody who's you know used your talents to just tell stories consistently for a very long time and it's you know like I I, I didn't I wrote my first script in 97 um, or I wrote it in 96 and it was bought in 97 wow. movie came out in 98 and I remember seeing your name on, you know, the screen before that on a bunch of movies, right? Bridges was 95. Yeah. And so the fact that you're somebody who's been able to go through these ups and downs, because everyone who does this, maybe except our friend Scott Frank, is hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, <laughs> right? You go through it. And uh, Scott's just never been cold. I mean, he's never been cold a day in his life, that guy. But the the rest of us, uh, and, and Tony um, would deny that he was ever cold. Yeah. <laughs> but but um but somehow you've rode through it and now to say that you found uh you've made this decision to to hew to your creative inspiration is I think again sort sort of um like a noble a noble thing and, and like you're 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 live you know, you're on a path that I think um the rest of us can look to and 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 follow. So, you know, I, I have gratitude for that oh <laughs> thank you thanks 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 well good and thank you for taking the time to do this everybody this watch his show the divide um on july 16th i know that i will tune in uh to watch richard legrobinace thanks for being here thank you hey are you on social media at all you're not on twitter are you i am on twitter yeah what are you on twitter um, what's your name at at R. Legravenes. So he's at R. Legravenes. I, I am at Brian Koppelman. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.